Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org. This is Christagenia Internet Radio, and tonight is Friday, March 14, 2014. Before I begin tonight, I would like to um, express my heartfelt gratitude to all of the good people who support our work at Christagenia. I wouldn't be able to do this without you. Today, Christagenia is in the top 118,000 websites in the world. That, that may not sound too impressive until you realize that there are 60 million websites, and to get where Christagenia is now, you have to have 700, 800 visitors a day in, in excess of 3,000 pages a day, which is what we get. We're the top 30,000 websites in the United States out of about 350 million websites. Most websites don't get visited. I'm not saying that to brag, but I'm just saying that to, uh, to, to let people know what our reach is and how we're doing. We've been in the top 100,000 websites before for 10 months back in 2011. I hope to be there again one day soon. We're getting about, if I had to estimate, I'd say about 50,000 podcast downloads a month from the main website. It, it peaked the middle of last summer at about 80,000. It, it's slipped since then, but that's okay. 50,000 a month, we'll take that. Praise Yahweh. We, we uh, feel blessed and humbled by that. Tonight we're going to present Micah Part 4, which is only going to encompass Micah Chapter 5. In Micah Chapter 4, we see that Yahweh God, in the time of his choosing, ultimately prevails over all of his enemies, because even though his people Israel were destined to go into captivity, they would indeed be established as a great nation which in the last days would be exalted above all other nations. However, we also saw that first the children of Israel must go to Babylon, as the text says, and there they must await their redemption. While suffering many things, they were portrayed as a woman in travail. We discussed how Babylon in Micah 4 in that vision is not a reference to the place itself, but rather it must be a reference to something which transcends geography, an idea which transcends the physical, literal, ancient city. That woman in travail, we pointed out while discussing Micah chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, is the same woman as the woman of the visions in Revelation chapters 12 and 17, where Israel, the, bri the bride, flees into the wilderness after the birth of the, of the Christ child, for which we can also compare Micah 4.7, and later becomes the whore of Babylon. John goes out to the wilderness and sees the woman, the whore who has joined herself to the beast. Yet, Micah 4 
holds out a promise of hope for the children of God that they should one day indeed arise and thresh to be the instruments by which Yahweh gathers his enemies as sheaves to the floor. However, here in Micah chapter 5, the focus of the prophecy seems to once again be on the more immediate trials which the children of Israel must face, where there is a siege laid against them, and where the judge of Israel, which must be a reference to God himself, is smitten upon the cheek. Yet, this would be an incomplete assessment. Rather, here in Micah chapter 5, apparently we see a prophecy of the more immediate results of those judgments which were pronounced upon Israel by the prophet in the first three chapters of his writing. However, the elements of this chapter are also relevant to Micah chapter 4. And what we have here is a Hebrew parallelism. Parallelism, parallelism, I'm sorry, is a common element of biblical literature whereby the same subject is described twice using somewhat different terms. A simple form of parallelism is found in the 119th Psalm at verse 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Now in that, in that verse, the phrase is, lamp unto my feet and light unto my path, both essentially mean the same thing and both describe thy word. But the parallelism is a poetic device used for emphasis, which can also make for beautiful poetry. The Bible, both New Testament and Old, we see parallelisms, which I discussed when I presented the Gospel of Mark here several years ago, two years ago, I believe. Both New Testament and Old, the Bible is replete with such language. From Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith Yahweh, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. We see a parallelism. He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending. Well, the phrase Alpha and Omega infers first and last, or beginning and ending. That's a parallelism. Here we shall hopefully see that while much of Micah chapter 5 is pertinent to the time immediate to Micah, and what was to befall Israel at the hand of the Assyrians, elements of it are also parallel to the prophecy of Micah chapter 4. The Assyrians being a type for the nations to be gathered against Israel in the last days. This is a parallelism on a grander scale than the simple one-verse forms which we have just illustrated. With that, we will start with Micah 5.1. Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. 
He has laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. The judge of Israel is Yahweh God himself and God incarnate as Yahshua Christ. When Yahweh uses other peoples to chastise the children of Israel, he permits those peoples to harm Israel. That's the whole story of the book of Judges and, and much of the other historical books of the Old Testament. And it is he himself, when this happens, who is being despised and smitten with a rod upon the cheek. So he was smitten when the Assyrians and the Babylonians carried Israel into captivity. And he was smitten again when he came in the flesh to suffer on account of the sins of Israel. And he is smitten he is being smitten once again in this present day, in these last days, because all of Christendom is overrun with beasts. All the other nations are gathered against Israel on account of their own sin. Hezekiah acknowledged this, that when Yahweh's people were being reproached, that it was really Yahweh being reproached. Hezekiah acknowledged this when the Assyrians had Jerusalem under siege and spoke haughty words to Judah before the walls of the city through Rabshakeh, the messenger sent by Shalmanassar, king of Assyria. King Hezekiah then responded, through his own messengers, as the account reads in 2 Kings chapter 19, and I'll read from verse 3. And they said to him, Thus saith Hezekiah. These are Hezekiah's emissaries talking to Rabshakeh. This day is a day of trouble and of rebuke and blasphemy, for the children are come to the birth, and there is not enough strength to bring forth. It may be... Yahweh thy God will hear all the words of Rabshakeh, whom the king of Israel, his master, has sent to reproach the living God and will reprove the words which Yahweh thy God has heard. Wherefore, lift up thy prayer for the remnant that are left. Hezekiah's Emissaries are repeating what Hezekiah had told them. Not all of the Psalms were written by David, and many of them were written by a man called Asaph. The Psalms of Asaph, they're at least 12 in number, Psalm number 50 and Psalms 73 through 83. They were written during the early years of the Babylonian captivity of Judah. Here from Psalm 74, from verse 8, 9 and 10, they said in their hearts, let us destroy them together. They had burned up 
all the synagogues of God in the land. We see not our signs. There is no more any prophet. Neither is there amongst us any that knoweth how long. O God, how long shall the adversary reproach? Shall the enemy blaspheme thy name forever? Asaph understood and expressed that the reproach of Israel, God's people, was indeed a reproach to God. When Israel suffers reproach at the hands of the enemies of God, it is Yahweh God himself who is being reproached. Yet Yahweh suffers that reproach for the sake of Israel, that they be chastised for their sins. From Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Verse 2 of Micah chapter 5. But now, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. The Apostle Matthew recorded the priests at Jerusalem as having cited this prophecy in reference to the birth of Christ upon the inquiry of Herod in chapter 2 of his gospel, where he wrote from verse 4, And when he, meaning Herod, had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem, of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, and thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. The Septuagint reading of Micah 5.2, as Branton has translated it, may be clearer yet. And thou, Bethlehem, house of Ephratah, art few in number to be reckoned among the thousands of Judah. Yet out of thee shall one come forth to me to be a ruler in Israel. And his goings forth were from the beginning, even from eternity. This ruler prophesied to come out of Judah must be Yahweh God himself. Since only of God may it be said that his goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. For that reason, the prophet Isaiah wrote in a similar messianic prophecy, Isaiah chapter 9, 6, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. 
if Christ, as we have just quoted in the Revelation, if Christ is the Alpha and Omega, the first and last, or the beginning and ending, as he says four times in the Revelation alone, then he indeed must be Yahweh God in the flesh, and this prophecy of Micah is one more testimony to that fact. As Yahweh often says in Isaiah, I am the first and the last. He also says, I am your Redeemer. Besides me, there is no other. If Christ is our Redeemer, Yahshua Christ is Yahweh come in the flesh. It's amazing how many fools supposing to be identity Christians don't get that one. It's even more amazing how many fools supposing to be identity Christians listen to the fool, to certain fools that, that deny that. It's incredible. They facilitate men in opposition to God. Bethlehem is called Ephratah, which is another form of Ephrath, because Ephrath was the original name of the city. Before the conquest of Canaan by the children of Israel, from Genesis chapter 35, from verse 15, and Jacob called the name of the place where God spake with him, Bethel, and, he, and they journeyed from Bethel. And there was but a little way to come to Ephrath. And Rachel travailed, and she had hard labor. And it came to pass, when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, thou shalt have this son also. And it came to pass, as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. But his father called him Benjamin, son of the right hand. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar upon her grave. That is the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. Evidently it was still there when the Genesis account was being written. Likewise, from Genesis 48, And as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died by me in the land of Canaan, in the way, when yet there was but a little way to come unto Ephrath. And I buried her there in the way of Ephrath, the same is Bethlehem. All of this, and this is really a parenthetical note, all of this needs to be explained fully because there is a coven of clowns and misfits claiming to be identity Christians who promote an Ephraim Scepter heresy and assert that because Bethlehem is called Ephrath, a word which is related to the same Hebrew word from which the name Ephraim is also derived. That therefore, Christ must have come from the tribe of Ephraim. And Micah 5.2 is wrong 
to mention Judah. I've actually heard this from, from certain turkeys. If that were true, then all the land of Ephraim would be called Bethlehem. Because twice in Genesis we are told that Bethlehem is Ephrath. Now where is all the land of Ephraim ever called Bethlehem? That was never the case. And there was no land of Ephraim in the time of Jacob because Ephraim himself was not even born. The land of Ephraim was not established until the days of Joshua. The Greek texts of Matthew mention Judah. And many other places in the New Testament inform us that Christ was certainly of the tribe of Judah. While there was another town called Bethlehem in the land of Zebulun, and we see that in Joshua chapter 19, Judges chapter 12, it is clear from the Old Testament that the Bethlehem, which was in Judah, was once called Ephrath, Judges chapter 17 through 19, Ruth chapter 1, 1 Samuel chapter 17. It is sad that so many so-called identity Christians give audience to the clowns promoting such ridiculous heresies. That's something that, and I see the names, and, and they, may, they, not, they may not think that they're not seen, but they are. When you give audience to, to clowns, usurpers, perverters of the word of God, turkeys that think they have exclusive truth from God, when you give audience to those people, you are facilitating their heresies. You are facilitating their errors and their lies. You become an accomplice to these charlatans. Pigs feeding at the trough. Micah chapter 5, verse 3. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travails is brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. She which travails is Israel. The woman, Israel as the nation, the woman of Revelation chapter 12, the woman of Revelation 17. And the children of Israel would therefore be given up. Therefore he will give them up until the time which she travails has brought forth. The children of Israel would be given up until the time when she brings forth the ruler prophesied in verse 2. The children of Israel were alienated from Yahweh in the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations. They were put off from God, divorced. The two families whom Yahweh had put away, as he says it, in Jeremiah. They were given up until when they were later reconciled in Christ. 
Here we see much the same picture which is drawn of Israel as a woman at the birth of the Christ child in Revelation chapter 12. Yahweh God manifest in the flesh as Yahshua Christ therefore becomes firstborn among many brethren as Paul explains in Romans 8.29. The only way that Yahshua Christ could be firstborn over 5,000 years after the creation of Adam is to be the fleshly manifestation of Yahweh God himself. He is the last Adam, as Paul calls him. Because only two Adamic men, so far as we have recorded in Scripture, were created directly by Yahweh. The rest of us are just copies. Some of us pretty imperfect. Therefore, Yahshua Christ is indeed the beginning and the end of his creation. There are some fools who claim to have exclusive truths from God, and they assert that Christ is Adam come a second time. That is certainly not scriptural. They claim that Christ is the reincarnation of Adam. That is absolutely contrary to scripture. Sadly, many so-called identity Christians also give that clown an audience. Micah chapter 5, verse 4. And he shall stand and feed in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God. And they shall abide, for now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. And this can only describe the Messiah himself. From Isaiah chapter 53, from verse 2, for he shall grow up before him. as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. And from Isaiah 53, verse 12, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he shall bear the sin of many. I'm sorry. And he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. As for the phrase, they shall abide here in Micah chapter 5 verse 4. The reference is to the remnant of his brethren and children of Israel in verse 3. The people of God can only abide in Christ. The ruler in Israel became great unto the ends of the earth because all of Israel in their dispersions accepted the gospel of Christ when it caught up with them. This alone is one of the most profound proofs of Christianity that the Old Testament prophets foretold these things, and that they foretold them many 
hundreds of years before they actually happened, can be established from history and archaeology with all certainty. There's no doubt this book of Micah existed hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, which happened hundreds of years before his name became great unto the ends of the earth, as Scripture said it would. The fulfillment of prophecy is the proof of the truth of God. Verse 5. And this man, that man in the King James Version is in italics, and this man shall be the peace when the Assyrian shall come into our land. And when he shall tread in our palaces, then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. There's problems with this verse. Uh, of course, that great ruler in Israel didn't come along for 700 years after the Assyrians tread in their palaces. That makes no sense whatsoever now, does it? We would never figure that one out. Well, well this one... Well, with the help of the, um, the Dead Sea Scrolls version, the Dead Sea Scrolls translation, we'll figure this one out. The word man was added to the text of the King James Version by the translators. And nearly all translations from the Masoretic text agree, even though there is no explicit word for man in the text, Rather, the pronoun for this is often interpreted as he in the more modern translations, in many of them anyway. The Septuagint rendering of Micah 5.5 by Branton reads this way, and she, that's, a, that's from a feminine pronoun, and she shall have peace when Asher shall come into your land. She would be a reference to the woman in travail, right? And when he shall come up upon your country, and there shall be raised against him seven shepherds and eight attacks of men, not eight principal men. Now, now that word attacks is from a Greek word, dagma, and it means bite, a bite or a sting. So, so Breton translated it as a tax. That's a significant difference there, but seven shepherds, eight principal men, seven shepherds, eight attacks of men. It's ambiguous either way, and we'll discuss that too. The Septuagint reading understands the subject where it says, and she shall have peace to be the woman in travail of verse 3. Now, now the pronoun in the modern Hebrew text, and I checked it for myself, is a masculine form pronoun. That's from Bible Works version 8. But the pronoun in the Septuagint is clearly feminine. Brenton's rendering of the passage is a very fair reading of the Greek. To clarify this, the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible, Abag, Flint, and Ulrich, interpreted Micah 5.5 quite differently 
and in a manner which is indeed also quite agreeable. So I have to give them credit for that, even though they, too, are Judeo-Christians and don't know the story. Well, well, the first clause of the verse is rendered, and this shall be our peace. But it is in that, in the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible, it is attached to the end of verse 4, something which is absolutely true concerning the Messiah who is the subject of verse 4, verses 2, 3, and 4. Then the authors of the Dead Sea Scroll Bible, the, the translators, they begin a new paragraph with the words, when the Assyrian, and they render the remainder of the verses this, when the Assyrian comes into our land, and when he treads in our palaces, then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight leaders of men. Now, that's leaders or eight principal men, as the King James has it. We see, and, and it's clear in the text, I've looked at it, the, the, the Hebrew of the Dead Sea Scrolls agrees with the Masoretic text here and not with the Septuagint. So, Verse 4, referring to the Messiah, and he shall stand and feed in the strength of Yahweh in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God, and they, meaning the children of Israel, and they shall abide, for now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth, and this shall be our peace. And then verse 5, we would start a, a, a new segment where it says, when the Assyrian comes into our land, and when he treads in our palaces, then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight leaders of men. We have a, 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 a totally new clause. And, and that translation on, on the part of the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible, I think, is excellent. The popular cross-references relate Micah 5.5 5 to Isaiah 9.6, announcing the birth of the Messiah, or to Zechariah 9.10, which is also related to a messianic prophecy. However, it is evident that no reckoning of seven shepherds and eight principal men, or eight leaders of men, if we're to follow the Masoretic text, and it's evident that we could hear. There is, it, it is evident that no reckoning of these men can add up to one Messiah, or even one Messiah and 11 or 12 apostles, or especially one Messiah and 10,000 heretical so-called Christian sects. Therefore, the translators of the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible, in our opinion, were correct to make the first part of verse 5 as a conclusion to the statement in verse 4, only Christ is our peace. When translating scripture, one should not take for granted 
the diverse and chapter divisions, which were made by scribes at a very late date, were always chosen wisely, because they were certainly not. With no modern punctuation in ancient languages, neither can it be taken for granted that even the sentence divisions are always correct. Although there are some basic grammatical principles by which ancient languages often, but not always, indicate sentence divisions. Micah had already prophesied that the impending Assyrian invasion of Israel would be successful with all certainty, which is readily apparent in chapters 2 and 3 of his prophecy. This is summed up in the last verse of chapter 3, where it is concluded that therefore Zion, for your sake, shall be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. So Micah, Micah's vision here in chapter 5 is not contradicting what he had prophesied earlier. Rather, Christ is our peace, and verses 2, 3, and 4, and the first part of verse 5 belong together. The children of Israel are being told to await the Messiah in their captivity and that he will be their peace. The rest of this verse, from the point when the Assyrian shall come into our land, should be cross-referenced with Isaiah chapter 10. That's where it should be cross-referenced. And we shall cite that here at length from verse 5. O Assyrian, rod of mine anger, and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. I will send against him, I'm sorry, I will send him against a hypocritical nation, that hypocritical nation, that's the children of Israel, and against the people of my wrath, that's the children of Israel, will I give him a charge to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Howbeit he meaneth not so, neither does his heart think so. But it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations not a few. For he saith, Are not my princes altogether kings? Is not Calno as Carchemish? The Assyrians had already destroyed the Hittite city of Carchemish. Is not Hamath as Arpad? Hamath was, a, was an Israelite city far in the north of Syria, and it was destroyed like Arpad was destroyed. Is not Samaria as Damascus? Damascus was destroyed. Samaria was already going, what was about to be destroyed at the hands of the Assyrians. Is not Samaria as Damascus. As my hand has found the kingdoms of the idols, and whose graven images did excel them of Jerusalem and of Samaria, shall I not, as I have done unto Samaria and her idols, so do to Jerusalem and her idols, 
Wherefore, it shall come to pass that when Yahweh has performed his whole work upon, upon Mount Zion and upon Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria. This is the point we're getting at. I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. For he saith, by the strength of my hand I have done it, not by the, by, by the grace of God, not by the will of God. And by my wisdom, for I am prudent, and I have removed the bounds of the people and have robbed their treasures, and I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. And my hand is found as a nest, the riches of the people. And as one gathereth eggs that are left, I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved the wing or opened the mouth or peeped. Shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith. Verse 15, of course, the prior words were those attributed to the, the, the attitude of the king of Assyria. Verse 15, God is asking, shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith. The king of Assyria is only the axe in the hand of Yahweh. Or shall the saw magnify itself against him that shakes it, as if the rod should shake itself against them that lift it up, or as if the staff should lift itself up, as if it were not wood? Therefore shall Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, send among his fat ones leanness. This is a promise of famine against the Assyrians. And under his glory shall he kindle a burning like the burning of the fire. And the light, this is important, and the light of Israel shall be for a fire and his holy one for a flame. And it shall burn and devour. This is the fire of Israel shall devour his, meaning the Assyrian, and shall burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day, and shall consume the glory of his forests and of his fruitful field, both soul and body, when they shall be as when a standard bearer faints, and the rest of the trees of the forest shall be few, meaning the forest of the people of Assyria, that a child may write them. And it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob shall no more again stay upon him that smote them, but shall stay upon Yahweh the Holy One of Israel, in truth. The remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob, unto the mighty God. Now, now of course, the remnant isn't going to return to Palestine. They're going to return to God. The text of Isaiah chapter 10, fully and 
explicitly informs us that while Assyria was used as a rod by which Yahweh punished Israel, Assyria itself would in turn be judged and punished by Yahweh, and that the children of Israel themselves would be used by God to execute that judgment. This is the unmistakable meaning of verses 16 through 19 of Isaiah chapter 10, and verse 20 fully infers that the house of Jacob would not stay in those places where the Assyrian had placed them after the manner in which we have already interpreted Micah chapter 4, that they were going to depart from Mesopotamia, and that those that were cast far off would become a strong nation. Those that stayed nearby would become a remnant. We could see that in the patterns of migrations of, of the Germanic peoples and their fate in history. Ostensibly, the popular commentaries cannot properly cross-reference Micah 5.5 5, for the simple reason that they do not understand it at all. And we will. We will understand it after we read Micah 5.6. And they, which must be a reference to, to Israel under the seven shepherds and the eight principal men, and they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword. We have to pay close attention to what's going on here because Mike is telling us that we, meaning Israel, shall raise against him, meaning Assyria, seven shepherds and eight principal men. Same thing Isaiah is telling us in chapter 10, in Isaiah 10, 16 through 20. And they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword. And the land of Nimrod and the entrances thereof. Now, now, some of the cities of the Assyrian Empire were the land of Nimrod, the land of Sumer, the empire that Nimrod had first established. And shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders? In our last presentation of Micah, at Micah chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, we offered several proofs from Scripture and history that the Germanic peoples are indeed the descendants of the children of Israel who went into captivity. Micah 5.5 5 helps to corroborate that assertion. However, in conjunction with Isaiah chapter 10, it is beyond all doubt. This is because no diaspora of Jews destroyed Assyria, but rather the people who are known from history to have destroyed the cities of the Assyrians towards the end of the 7th century B.C., are the Scythians, who were the ancestors of today's Germanic people. I should say peoples. 
The following text is from a paper at Christogenia entitled Herodotus, Scythians, Persians, and Prophecy. I think I wrote it in 2004. And I quote, Isaiah 10, 5-16, foretells the destruction of Assyria. 10, 17, and 18, and 10, 20-27, and Isaiah eleven sixteen fully assure that Israelites will be actively involved in that destruction. Isaiah 14, 24 through 27 mentions this destruction again. Herodotus relates, Herodotus, the classical Greek historian of the 5th century BC, Herodotus relates that the Medes were already at war with the Assyrians when the Scythians invaded Media during the reign of the Median king. Cyaxares. Cyaxares reigned from 628 to 585, I'm sorry, 625 to 585 BC, according to the chronology of Herodotus. 625 to 585. The Scythians prevented the Medes from destroying Nineveh, according to Herodotus, and themselves became masters of Asia a position they held for 28 years. Now, while Herodotus states that it was Cyaxares who conquered Nineveh himself after becoming free of the Scythians, this is impossible since Nineveh was destroyed before 612 B.C. and, as I esteem, Herodotus is very likely repeating later propaganda from the Medes. Strabo tells us, rather, that in ancient times, greater Armenia ruled the whole of Asia after it broke up the empire of the Syrians. Now, this is a common mistake on the part of the Greeks. Obviously, Strabo confused Syrians with Assyrians. And he mentions greater media later in the paragraph, so he is not confusing greater Armenia with greater media. Greater Armenia is the first Scythian land, according to the Greek historian Diodorus Siculus. Diodorus Siculus, Library of History, Book 2, Chapter 43. Along with the witness of Herodotus, albeit indirectly, Diodorus Siculus and Strabo show that Isaiah was correct. The Israelites, with the Medes in league with them, destroyed Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire. This can be found, aside from Diodorus Siculus, Book 2, Herodotus, Book 1, Chapters 102 through 106, Strabo, Geography, Book 11, Chapter 13. Of course, the citations are in my papers at Christogenia. They will be linked with this podcast when it's posted. Yahweh willing. One more passage from my writing in support of this is taken from notes which I had written for 
Clifton Emmerheiser's Watchman's Teaching Letter, number 72, dated April 2004. And again, I quote, This Araxis River, circa 530 B.C., where Cyrus II, Cyrus the great king of the Persians, invades the Scythians, is the ancient boundary between Armenia, but this section lies in what's called Azerbaijan today, and Media, which is currently the northwest portion of Iran. Theodore Siculus says of the Scythians in his Library of History, but now, in turn, we shall discuss the Scythians who inhabit the country bordering upon India. This people originally possessed little territory, but later, as they gradually increased in power, they seized much territory by reason of their deeds of might and their bravery and advanced their nation to great leadership and renown. At first, then, they dwelt on the Araxis River. The Araxis River was the ancient boundary between the land of the Medes, where the Israelites were first settled, and what was later known as Armenia. At first, then, they dwelt on the Araxis River, altogether few in number, and despised because of their lack of renown. But since one of their early kings was warlike and of unusual skill, as a general they acquired much territory in the mountains as far as the Caucasus, and in the steppes along the ocean and Lake Maotis. Lake Maotis is the Sea of Azov today, just above the Black Sea. And the rest of that country as far as the Tanais River, the Tanais River is known today as the Don. But some time later, the descendants of these kings subdued much of the territory beyond the Tanais River as far as Thrace. For this people increased to great strength and had notable kings, one of whom gave his name to the Sake, another to the Masigete, another to the Aramaspi, and several other tribes received their names in like manner. Now, from the Sake and the Masigete came the later Germanic tribes known as the Saxons and Goths, among others. The land from the Tanais River as far as Thrace, that encompasses, that encompasses modern Ukraine, Moldova, and Romania. That's the homeland of the later Germanic peoples who invaded Western Europe, Italy, Britain, Gaul, Spain, the Goths, the Saxons, the Vandals. They all came from there. The Greeks, the Greeks long had settlements along the coast of the Black Sea and had thoroughly explored its shores. And they were certainly familiar with the land and its inhabitants. The Greeks were very familiar with all of this land. The Malaysians had settlements along the coast of the Black Sea and all up and down the Danube River Valley by the time of Herodotus. Herodotus visited some of those settlements. Herodotus told us that for the most part, the lands north of the Danube were vacant at his time. 
Well, from the testimony of the classical historians, we can be certain that the Israelites, Scythians, even in league with the Medes and others, had destroyed Nineveh and the other notable cities of Assyria. Sadly, we do not, as of yet, have the historical details which may help us to determine the identity of the seven shepherds and the eight principal men, if we follow the Masoretic text, which it is apparent that we should. Without any major discoveries in archaeology, we may never have those details, who these men were that led this great war against the Assyrians and destroyed Nineveh and the other great cities of Assyria. However, Micah 5.5 certainly does say that these men were raised up as a reaction to what the Assyrians had done to the children of Israel, and therefore, as the retribution against Assyria, which Yahweh says would come at the hands of Israel, in the words of Isaiah chapter 10, and in the words of Micah chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, here. It may be asserted that these words at Micah 5.5 5 have a double fulfillment, once after the Assyrian conquest of Israel and Judah, and again with the second advent of the Messiah. The possibility is certainly made manifest in the verses which follow. We will see this in Micah chapter 5, verses 7 through 10, 7 through 11, especially in verse 10. But neither can we, with vain imaginations, presume to be able to identify such men today. And neither can we properly consider all of the nations gathered against Israel today to be Assyrians. Although the Assyrians of antiquity can indeed be a type for the peoples gathered against the Celtic Saxon children of Israel today. Even after the destruction of Nineveh and the other great Assyrian cities, there is still more to the Assyrian story. We will touch on that shortly. Verse 7. Nineveh was destroyed, by the way, by, by all archaeological estimates in 612 B.C. Verse 7. And the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people as a dew from Yahweh, as the showers upon the grass that tarrieth not for man, nor waiteth for the sons of men. To begin to understand this, we must understand where it was that the children of Israel were after the destruction of Assyria. When Nineveh was destroyed, the Scythians were in league with the Medes, as well as other tribes of the Adamic Oikumene. And the Scythians were dwelling among the Medes, the Persians, the Babylonians, and others. Some of these were later known to the Greek writers by their Assyrian name, from which we get the name of the Chimerians. The Greeks called the first Scythians that came into Europe Chimerians because 
the lingua franca, the language of trade and diplomacy at this time, was the Assyrian language, which was Akkadian, and the Israelites were called the Qumri. The Cimmerians crossed Anatolia soon after the destruction of Nineveh, beginning the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 66:19, which we discussed in our presentation of Micah chapter 4 at length. Others tarried behind in Mesopotamia or dwelt in and around the Caucasus Mountains in those countries later known as Armenia and Iberia and around the Caspian Sea from whence came the later Parthians and also in the parts north of Persia as far east as Bactria and Sogdiana which was the land called Transoxiana this land corresponds today with modern-day Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and southwest Kazakhstan. It is the land between the Oxus, or the Amadarya, as it's now called, and the Jakartas, or Sirdarya, rivers, which are to the east of the Caspian Sea. To the Greeks of the late classical period, all of these lands were the lands of those Scythians who were also called from their Persian names Sake and Masagede. And it was from these tribes that great numbers would later emigrate into Western and Central Europe. Many of the Scythians of these parts were listed as being in league with the Persians who invaded Greece in the time of Xerxes. So we know that the Scythians had left, as Diodorus Siculus testifies, that the Scythians had left their homeland on the Araxis River, traveled around the coasts of both the Black Sea into Europe as far as Thrace, and the Caspian Sea as far as what we consider India today, where they occupied Bactria and Sogdiana. These Sake and Masagete, who were, who were inhabiting Transoxiana for many centuries, actually, that's where, that's where Buddhism got its start, by the way, by Hebrews. These invaded Europe later. The Cimmerians were the first wave of the Scythians in Europe. There were other waves, and then the last major waves were the Sake, or the Saxons, the Masagete, tribes like the Vandals and the Alans. They were the last waves of the Germanic people, the Scythian Israelites, into Europe. They weren't always well-received. Diodorus Siculus informs us that as the Scythians migrated into Europe, they brought with them as subjects large portions of the Medes and the Assyrians. 
whom they settled north of the Black Sea and whom later became known as Sarmatians. Theodorus also tells us that these Sarmatians later fought with the Scythians and even ravaged a large part of Scythia. The Sarmatians are ostensibly the ancestors of many of today's Central European Slavs. Although the lines between the Germanic tribes and the Slavic tribes are obscure, and they really can't be determined upon language alone. In fact, they can't be determined at all. Yet it must also be noted that all of these places adjacent to Mesopotamia and the steppes of Asia, through which the children of Israel moved, had already seen settlements of other Aryan peoples from Syria, from Mesopotamia, from Persia, and modern anthropologists often confuse these earlier movements of Aryan tribes for the ancestors of the Israelite Scythians, just because they had predecessors does not mean that those predecessors were ancestors, and that is a mistake which often is made by archaeologists and anthropologists. Before the greater part of the Scythians departed from Mesopotamia and the other areas where they were settled, the children of Israel were indeed at the fall of Assyria, among the other Genesis 10 nations, many of them Adamic and many of them were Canaanite. The Assyrians did not entirely destroy and supplant the Hittites, the Chaldeans, the Hurrians, the Amorites, and the other tribes which they had conquered, but rather over a period of over five or six hundred years, they subjected and absorbed them. <laughs> so that Mesopotamia itself had a population which was more or less composite of all of these people and others. Not only Mesopotamia, but Syria, northern Syria as well. The Assyrians engaged in relocating populations that they conquered for political purposes. It didn't only happen to Israel. The Greeks even wrote about the Assyrians doing that. The outlying areas also came to have diverse populations as well, as the Assyrians moved population groups to the frontiers. Yet in the decades leading up to the destruction of Nineveh, and before they began their migrations away from the area, which were prophesied in Micah chapter 4 and in Isaiah chapter 66, the remnant of Jacob were certainly in the midst of many people, as Micah 5, 7 tells us they would be. Yahweh said of the children of Israel in Amos chapter 9, For lo, I will command, and I will sift the house of Israel among all the nations, like as corn is sifted in a sieve. Yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. 
All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, which say, the evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. However, if we accept this prophecy with a dual fulfillment, as verses 10 through 15 of this chapter certainly indicate that we should. And as we saw in Micah chapter 4, that many nations would be gathered against Israel in the last days, Micah 4.11. Then, in another way, this prophecy is already fulfilled as a double prophecy. It's a prophecy with a dual fulfillment. As was indicated when we discussed in relation to Micah chapter 4, when we discussed Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, many nations would come in like a cloud to cover the land of the people of Israel. So once again, it is true that the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples. Here we begin to see that the vision of Micah chapter 5 is prophetically speaking a parallelism it's parallel to the vision of Micah chapter 4 parallel because it's stating the same thing as Micah chapter 4 stated in a somewhat different manner verse 8 Micah 5 and the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles, or nations, in the midst of many people, as a lion among the beasts of the forest, as a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who, if he goes through, both treads down and tears in pieces, and none can deliver. Thine hand shall be lifted up upon thine adversaries, and all thine enemies shall be cut off. This is a parallelism. This portion is parallel with Micah 4.12. Arise and thresh. The Scythians did indeed come to dominate the other nations which they were settled amongst. As Herodotus had attested, they ruled all Asia, which we have cited above. The Scythians ruled all Asia for several decades after the fall of Nineveh. The Persians under Cyrus attempted to conquer the Scythians dwelling north of the Araxes River and failed, which is where Cyrus met his death. Now much later, Xerxes managed to subject some of the Scythians for a time, those who remained around the Black Sea as far as Thrace. By this time, however, many of the Galatahi as they were later called by the Greeks. Yet, you know, in the, in, in the 6th century and in the 5th century B.C., in the 6th century, the, the, the Scythians were called Chimerians by the Greeks. In the 5th century, the Scythians were called Sacae by the Greeks, in addition to being called Scythians. And then, by the time of the tragic poets, and especially from the 4th century, the Scythians were called Galatahi by the Greeks. Same people. Same people, without a doubt. 
By this time, many of the Galatahi, and we're talking about the, the invasion of Greece by Xerxes, we're talking about perhaps 470 B.C., Many of them had migrated in waves down the Danube River Valley and into Western Europe. We discussed that when we discussed Micah chapter 4. After that, some time after that, the Parthians, who were a branch of the Scythians, conquered and ruled over all of Mesopotamia and Persia for several centuries. And through the Roman period, the Parthians were the biggest enemy to the Romans. The Germanic tribes continued to fulfill this prophecy down through history. And they have dominated history ever since the fall of Rome, fulfilling the prophecy of Daniel chapter 2. Here we see that Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many people which must be a reference to the other Genesis 10 Adamic nations, those places to which the Israelites were deported by the Assyrians. They were all Genesis 10 nations. Even if they were Canaanites, which some of them were, they were still listed in the Genesis 10 table of nations. Here we see that Israel would be as a lion among the beasts of the forest. This prophetic allegory invites a further discussion. There are many who call themselves identity Christians and who make the insistence, and this is a ridiculous insistence, that every time phrases such as beast of the field or beasts of the forest appear in scripture, that they refer to the so-called non-white or other races of so-called people. This is simply not true. It's ridiculous. There's a certain clown in Chicago who insists that every time the Bible says beasts of the field, it's referring to non-white people. That's absurd. That's ridiculous absolutely ridiculous. It's especially ridiculous in Genesis chapter 1. Often, these phrases are used as allegories. Sometimes they mean animals. Often they're used as allegories, seemingly derogatory allegories for people for the other Adamic nations, or sometimes even for the children of Israel themselves. Sometimes these phrases are used as pejoratives, and sometimes they are merely poetic descriptions. First, notice that Jacob is described as a lion. And here I'm going to address the incredibly ridiculous idea that when you see an allegory or a metaphor in Scripture, that it has to mean the same thing every time it's mentioned. That's not true. That's absurd. Notice here that Jacob is described as a lion. Ask many identity Christians what the lion stood for in Scripture, and they would most frequently, frequently respond with Judah. And some of them would insist that 
every time it mentions a lion, it really means Judah, if it's used as an allegory. However, it is foolish to insist that an allegory or metaphor in Scripture must be interpreted in the same manner everywhere that it appears. This is simply not true, and it leads to all kinds of errors. Here in this passage, we see another example of parallelism, where the same entity, the remnant of Jacob, is described by two phrases. First, as a lion among the beasts of the forest, and then as a young lion among the flocks of sheep. Now, that's another example where an allegory can't be interpreted the same place everywhere. Because if the Israelites are Yahweh's sheep, well then Jacob, the remnant of Jacob, is among himself. That doesn't make any sense. So we see that sheep here, in this place, this being a parallelism, Sheep also refers to the other Genesis 10 Adamic nations. They're referred to as beasts of the forest, and then they're referred to as sheep. Now, you can't say that either of these allegories refers to non-Adamic races, because at this time in Mesopotamia, in Persia, in Syria, there are no non-Adamic races. There are no Hutus and Tutsis running up and down the Euphrates River. There are no yellow squat monsters sitting in Padanaram making bok choy for the Syrians. They're not there. You won't find them. It's ridiculous to insist that these phrases refer to non-white races. It's ridiculous to insist that a metaphor in Scripture has to have the same meaning everywhere. That's absurd. That Jew in Chicago, he's a liar. Anybody that makes such insistences have not read their Bible. With this understanding, and, and I'm going to bring up a couple of other instances where this is clear. With this understanding, we can see in Joel chapter 2 where Yahweh addresses the children of Israel in verse 19 and says, Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do, do spring, for the tree bears her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength together. That's in verse 19, he's addressing the children of Israel in verse 22, be not afraid, ye beasts of the field. Then he says in verse 23, be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in Yahweh your God. Yahweh addresses only the children of Israel in this entire passage. And since he often refers to Israel as sheep, as cattle, as lions, as other animals. And since we have here another case of parallelism, it's apparent that the term beast of the field in this instance also applies to Israel. It's not a pejorative in this case. It's a poetic 
metaphor. Whenever Israel is referred to as sheep or cattle or the bullock of Joseph or the roe of Naphtali, that is poetic metaphor. And that's what we have here. The beast of the field is poetic metaphor. The beast of the forest is poetic metaphor. Or poetic allegory, if you want to use that term. From Ecclesiastes chapter 3, I said in mine heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time, there is for every purpose and for every work. I said in mine heart concerning the estate of the sons of men that God might make manifest them and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. That term sons of men is sons of Adam. And here we have, here we have basically a pejorative that the sons of Adam are called little but beasts by the author of Ecclesiastes. Without the guidance of the Spirit of God, his word and his law, men are indeed little but beasts. For this reason, in the same chapter of Ecclesiastes, we read in verse 10, I have seen the travail which God has given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. In that exercise, Christians find hope. So while it was true, after the fall of Nineveh, that the remnant of Jacob was among the nations in the midst of many people. This prophecy having a dual fulfillment, we see that the same thing is once again true today. Since, as Micah forebodes in chapter 4, verse 11, now also many nations are gathered against thee that say, let her be defiled and let our eye look upon Zion which is also the same thing that happened to ancient Israel. In response, however, the word of Yahweh in Micah says in Micah chapter 4, but they know not, in verse 12, but they know not the thoughts of Yahweh, neither understand they his counsel, for he shall gather them as sheaves to the floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thine horn iron, and I will make thy hooves brass, and thou shalt beat in pieces many people. So the children of Zion have horns and hooves too. I wouldn't take that literally. With the call in Micah 4 to the people of God to arise, Zion and Thresh, we see the same idea expressed here in Micah 5 verse 9, of the same last day circumstances, where it says that Jacob shall be as a lion among the beasts of the forest, who, if he goes through, both treads down and tears in pieces, and none can deliver. Thine hand shall be lifted up upon thine adversaries, and all thine enemies shall be cut off. Therefore, these two chapters of Micah 4 and 5 are a parallelism. They both express in different ways the expectation 
and method of deliverance which the children of Israel are promised in the last days. Verse 10. And it shall come to pass in that day. Here's our indication that this is a parallelism with Micah 4. Here's our indication that this is a prophecy with a dual fulfillment. Because after the Israelites destroyed the Assyrians, they still had war. They still had chariots and horses. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith Yahweh, that I will cut off thy horses out of the midst of thee, and I will destroy thy chariots, and I will cut off thy cities, the cities of thy land, and throw down all thy strongholds. And I will cut off witchcrafts out of thy hand, and thou shalt have no more soothsayers. Thy graven images also will I cut off, and thy standing images out of the midst of thee, and thou shalt no more worship the work of mine hands, of, of thine hands. And I will pluck up thy groves out of the midst of thee. And we'll cut verse 14 off right there. Here we may see another prophecy indicating that this is a dual fulfillment. One in the acceptance of Christianity by the Celtic and Germanic tribes, and another impending, we pray, in the future. However, while the children of Israel seem to have accepted Christianity, we cannot look at history honestly and find that these things were ever truly fulfilled with any degree of permanency. They were in diverse places at diverse times, they're all back today. Horses and chariots represent the instruments of war, and we still have war with us to this day, so we're still awaiting the fulfillment of this prophecy. Although at one time there was a hope for peace and Christian unity amongst the Christian nations of medieval Europe, it didn't last. The cities of dispersed Israel are Mecca's, of vice and deprivation unto this day, we're going to address them in the next verse, as they have often been throughout European history, and they need to be cut off since they have all, in modern times, become as Sodom and Gomorrah. For some time after adopting Christianity, the children of Israel ceased from sorcery. However, in modern times, sorcery has made a comeback under the guise of the medical and pharmaceutical so-called sciences. Soothsaying, well, that was put away a long time ago, too. But today it's been replaced by market forecasting, news commentaries, and a host of other so-called professions, Jewish media professions, which really amount to soothsaying. Upon the adoption of Christianity, the children of Israel switched from worshiping graven images of idols and false gods to worshiping graven images of presumed saints 
and other icons that were really just remanufactured idols and false gods. In modern times, graven images are most often seen in print and on electronic displays. The ancient groves of idolatry have now been replaced by entertainment meccas, by sports bars, by casinos, and other places where entertainments are offered in commerce and where the sins of Sodom and, Sodom and Gomorrah are reenacted with regularity. So while Christians perceive that pagan idolatry and witchcraft have been put away, in reality, they are surrounded by such things, and they do not even recognize it. To continue with Micah, so I will destroy thy cities, and I will execute vengeance in anger and fury upon the heathen, or upon the nations, such as they have not heard. The cities of ancient Israel were destroyed. However, the entire prophecy in this chapter refers not to ancient Israel, but to Israel in dispersion. There is a prophecy very similar to this one found in Revelation chapter 9. Ostensibly, Revelation chapter 9 relates to the invasions of Christendom at the hands of the Arabs and the Turks. For the things described in that chapter compare very precisely to those events of history. Upon the completion of the prophecy of those events, the Word of God says in Revelation chapter 9, in verses 20 and 21, of the aftermath of those things, and the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk, neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. In other words, Christendom, Christendom was reproached and taunted by the Arabs and the Turks, and they still didn't repent. While throughout history at diverse times, many of the cities of Israel have been destroyed, Dresden, 1945, Hamburg. Nevertheless, Christ said in the gospel, but when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. Mark 10:23. Therefore it is evident that the cities of Israel will not be destroyed until the marriage supper of the Lamb, which takes place with the second advent of Christ. Today, those non-Israel nations who have come against the children of Israel, as Micah 4.11 presages, those heathens have filled the cities of Israel, and for that reason, they need to be destroyed. Therefore, this prophecy of Micah chapter 5 parallels that of Micah chapter 4, 
and speaks of the revenge of our God on all of the non-Israel nations. One vision ends by expressing the hope of Israel, that Israel would arise and thresh and overcome all of their enemies. And the other vision, this one here, expresses the cost to Israel, that this world must be destroyed as a matter of their salvation. From 2 Peter, chapter 3, verse 7, But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved under the fire, against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. Tomorrow night, Martin Luther, Part 5.